Well, good morning. I did get the message. I am here. I've been awake for several hours, actually. And I'm still using my iPad mini, but I still have my backup Bible. And we are still in 1 Samuel. We're going to begin here in chapter 15. When I was a young man, I was raised in London, England. That's where my mother hails from, actually from Ireland. And though I was born in the United States, I lived there for 10 years as a young boy. And we lived in a house that was divided into what they call flats or apartments. My mother owns the house. And we had above us and below us other families. There were 13 children in the house altogether in the flats. Uh, by design, my mom wanted us to have a lot of kids that we grew up with. And above us was a family, a father and a mother. I was raised in a single family home with my mom. And uh, a son and two, well, actually ended up being two sons and two daughters. But I was good friends with the boy, Paul. We were um, friends for the many years that we were there. And his dad occasionally became my dad, you know, in a good sense, in a positive sense. He taught me how to play chess. He would bring gifts for his son and also include me. And one day he came home with a couple of gifts. One of them was wrapped and one of them was unwrapped. And they were both cars, little model cars, really cool cars. The one that was unwrapped was so cool. It had little doors that would open. You know, it was about this size. It wasn't a really small one. It was a medium-sized one. It had little doors that would open and darken windows. And it was, a, it was a 65 or a 66 Mustang. It was white with blue stripes. I mean, I can't forget these cars. And, and it was so cool. And we just, we just, oh, we just wanted those so bad. We could hardly, we were ready to just grab them out of his hands. And... But before he gave them to us, he said, now I have these two gifts, and of course one of them is, is wrapped, and one of them is not wrapped, and Paul, I'm going to give you first choice, and then James, you can have the one that's left over. And immediately, Paul went for the one that was unwrapped. He went for the one, the Mustang, the cool white with blue striped Mustang with the doors that open in the darkened windows. And I got stuck with the other one. But when I unwrapped the other one, what I found was something that was just even more incredible than the Mustang with the blue stripes and the darkened windows and the doors that opened. This car had a trunk that opened and doors that opened and a front end that opened and it had the wheels that would turn just a little bit. It was just an incredible car, so much so that, well, I won't tell you what happened after that, but <laughs> I will say this. Our danger lies in being content with what we've already seen and wanting that more, perhaps, than what God still has for us, what God still wants to reveal to us, what God still wants to show us. This morning, we're going to pick up in 1 Samuel chapter 15. I'm glad you're here this morning to, uh, to join me in this morning hour, because I believe God wants to feed us until we want no more. We need to just be overflowing in such a way that we just want to just want to overflow to others that we come in contact with and just have enough to feed them. And there are times I know when we've experienced that. We've looked at the experience of Saul in his good days. We've contrasted that with the experience of Saul in his bad days. We've been looking at principles of biblical leadership and not only what he did, but what he didn't do, perhaps as a warning for us. We've looked at Samuel and how God led him and blessed him and anointed him. And there were a number of points here that we made about Samuel. And I want to just pick up here in 1 Samuel 15, because we talked about how God is the God of second chances. And, and Samuel was mourning and weeping over Saul. That's what biblical leaders do. And, and, and he wanted to, to reach out to Saul again and again, and God used him to do that. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, Samuel goes to Saul again, and he goes with the word of the Lord. We should never take it upon ourselves to go to those who are strained from God on our own recognizance, on our, on our own will. We should always be basing our ventures into secularism or into the domain of Satan on the word of God. God needs to lead us. Whatever we do, wherever we're going, we need the word of God. We need a thus saith the Lord. And when we have a thus saith the Lord, we can go into almost any company where God sends us and be an influence, be a blessing. So the reason why this is so significant is because when you look at Saul, Samuel, you realize later on that Samuel is actually afraid of Saul. Samuel is told later to go and anoint David to be king in Saul's place. And he says, I'm afraid that Saul will kill me if I do that. 
It is only the word of God that gives us the courage to do what God wants us to do. And so Samuel goes to Saul here in 1 Samuel 15.1, and he says, Thus says the Lord, the Lord sent me to anoint you king of Israel. Thus says the Lord, verse 2, I will punish Amalek. And so the second chance that Saul is given is to follow up with something that God wanted him to accomplish in behalf of the nation of Israel concerning the Amalekites. It says, and he's very specific here, that Saul is to go and to destroy all of the Amalekites, and he's not to leave any of the Amalekites alive. Not even the animals are to be left alive. Does Saul do this? Well, it depends on who you ask, doesn't it? Does Saul think that he obeyed God? Yes, and he tells Samuel just that. And this is one of the difficulties that you're going to find as as we move through the purpose for God in our lives, in the church, in every situation, we're going to find ourselves confronted with people, not only out there, but in the mirror, people who perceive themselves sometimes as obeying God when really they're falling short, when really they're not obeying God. They're not doing what God really wants them to do. We're not doing what really God wants us to do. And that can be a startling revelation, but it doesn't have to be. If we recognize and understand Christ in his fullness, as our righteousness, as our salvation, we can deal with our shortcomings and our failures. We can deal with the things that we see in the mirror and the things that we see in other people. But Saul was not willing to recognize that. He had changed. Something had altered in his in his way of thinking at this point. And so when Samuel comes to him and begins to, to ask him about what he has accomplished or whether he has accomplished the task, Saul begins again to make excuses. And in that context, God begins to grieve over and repent, in a sense, of the fact that he called Saul to be king. And Samuel begins to grieve. Samuel is revealing the heart of God. And, and it says right here in 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 11, God says, I greatly regret that I've set up Saul as king and he has turned his back from following me. He has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel and he cried out to the Lord all night. Have you ever spent sleepless nights grieving over the sins that you see in the church? I know I've spent many hours talking about the sins that we see in the church and communicating my frustration over the sins that I see in the church. But what about this idea of mourning and weeping and grieving that we see here in the life of Samuel, in the heart of Samuel? Biblical leadership spends sleepless nights grieving over the sins and faults and problems in the church. And then he goes to Saul. He rises up early in the morning to meet Saul. And he goes to him and he, and he begins to communicate to him. Now, when Saul meets him, Saul says in verse 13, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. But biblical leadership is not deterred by the flattery or the professed claims of obedience to God's word. It sticks to the point. And Samuel has a specific message he needs to communicate to Saul, regardless of the flattery, regardless of the words that Saul is communicating to him. Oh, you're blessed, are you, man of God, and, and I've been obedient to God. No, you haven't actually been obedient to God. And then he actually has to silence Saul because Saul uh, begins to, to talk and to speak, and, and Samuel basically says to him, Be quiet, and I'm going to tell you what the Lord has to say. And then, and that's, we have to do that sometimes as leaders. And then it goes on in verse, in verse 17 to describe how Saul, Samuel says to Saul, how when you were little in your own eyes, when you were little in your own eyes, God sent you on a mission. But you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord. And he asked him in verse 19, why haven't you obeyed the voice of the Lord? Biblical leadership is, is willing to question the disobedience and search out the reasons behind it. And sometimes I find that when we deal with issues in the church and we're looking at these two sides perhaps, or we're looking at people that we see as disobedient, we don't always understand why they are pursuing the course they're pursuing. 
We don't under, un, always understand the history behind rebellion. And I think it's important for us when we deal with these issues, whether it's the present issue concerning women's ordination or little issues that have to do or larger issues that have to do with righteousness by faith, whatever it is, I think it's important for us to do research, to understand history, to understand the reasoning so that we can ascertain and, and get to the bottom of the issue. And this is what Samuel is, is doing with Saul. And he's not just doing it for his sake, he's doing it for Saul's sake. Why, why did you do what you did? What are you thinking in your brain? Where are you coming from? That would help him to help Saul. Verse 20, and Saul says to Samuel, but I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission which the Lord sent me on. It is amazing to me to realize the blindness that I have in my own life, in my own experience when it comes to what God has called me to do. And I see that more and more in my own life and also as I see others. It is so easy for us to focus on what we've done for God, the missions we've gone on, and fail to realize where we have failed to obey God and accomplish what He wants us to do. Now, I don't want us to be overwhelmed with that thought, only to the degree that we would allow God to lay our glory in the dust so that He can do for us what we can't do for ourselves. And many times we, we revel in our glory dust <laughs> rather than just being vanquished and allowing God to, to reveal to us more of what He wants, to unwrap that which we have not yet seen. We fall short of what, 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 what God really wants us to experience in the experience of righteousness by faith. And then Saul, Samuel says, verse 22, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Now, biblical leadership has to be willing to confront stubbornness and idolatry with the truth of the gospel. Sacrifice, going on missions, doing all of this stuff is insignificant, we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, if it is not based upon the love of God in the heart, which comes to us through the righteousness of Jesus Christ and our dependence on that righteousness. So we must allow Jesus to fully enthrone our hearts, to be king of everything. We must depend on Him and Him alone, not on our mission trips, not on our partial obedience or full obedience as we might see it as Saul saw it. We must be willing to lay aside everything and take a hold of the righteousness of Jesus Christ because all of that is meaningless unless we obey the gospel. And then Saul, verse 24, said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words. Because, why did I do it? Because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin. Return with me that I may worship the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you. And I think this is amazing. I'm thinking, wait a minute. Didn't he just confess? No, he didn't confess. He made excuses. He, put blame, he cast blame. Biblical leadership does not cast blame. Biblical leadership takes responsibility for failure. Biblical leadership even takes responsibility for failures that aren't theirs. It takes responsibility in a corporate sense. That's what Christ did. He took responsibility for our failures. Saul's not willing to do that. And, and his whole reason for wanting, for confessing his sin is because he wants Samuel to go with him. He wants to keep up appearances. Appearances. It was amazing when we were in that meeting. I can't remember which one it was. There's been so many good thoughts and good meetings. Where the, I think it was Jerry's meeting where he said that... Uh, Billy Graham quote was quoting Tozier, we're going back quite a few, aren't we? And said, you know, that if the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church, 95% of the activities would continue. Is that about what he, I mean, that's incredible. But I think about that in relation to myself. And I think if I wake up in the morning and I don't give my heart to Jesus and I'm not consecrated to God, how much of Adventism would I continue to do? Would I continue keeping the Sabbath? Would I continue paying tithe? Would I continue 
continue, continue? And I would have to say yes. I wouldn't stop the outward forms of Adventism if I neglected to give my heart to Jesus. But without the Spirit, all of that is just a form, and that's what Saul has here. He just has a form. He wants appearance, but it's not a reality. His repentance is not genuine, it's not deep. And Samuel refuses to compromise with that kind of an experience. He wants to go all the way. And then, of course, Saul grabs Samuel, Samuel, verse 27. He seizes the edge of his robe, he tears it, and he says to him, and Samuel says to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today. Biblical leadership is not intimidated even by physical threats or assaults. Maintains, maintains, maintains. But then, in a turn of events, as Saul continues to plead with Samuel, Samuel goes with Saul. And I'm not sure exactly why he does this, but I know that something is accomplished through this. He turns and he goes with Saul. Saul asks him, verse 30, to honor him, please, before the elders and the people. And I think maybe Samuel's thinking there needs to be a stability of unity here. I see that in the life of Ellen White many times when there was division, that she went ahead and did what the brethren asked her to do, even though she didn't feel that God was leading her to do that, like going to Australia. There were times when the unity of the church was more important than these individual issues that were seeking to divide. And so he went with Saul, but I think it was really interesting. As he did this, Saul, and worship with Saul, Samuel said, Bring Agag, verse 32, king of the Amalekites, here to me. So Agag came to him cautiously, and Agag said, Surely the, the bitterness of death is past. But verse 33, Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Whew. That is serious. Can you see yourself doing that as a biblical leader? You can. You, you just need to transform it to our time. Because basically what Samuel is doing is hacking to pieces the, the last vestiges of self and selfishness that are there representing the Amalekites who were stubborn, who had rejected God, who had turned away from God, who were hurting God's people. Everything that hurts and destroys God's people, everything that is against God, opposed to God. And you know, the Amalekites, they didn't confront God's people at, the, at, the, at the, their strongest point. They confronted them at their weakest point. They came up behind God's people as they were traveling through, and they attacked the, the ones in the back that were weak and weary and trailing behind. This was the... the the depravity of their sin, the greatness of their sin. And God wants that destroyed. He wants every vestige in us destroyed that would attack and criticize and pull down the weaknesses of others. Can you see yourself doing that? Hacking that to pieces? It's not, this, we're not talking about a person here. We're not talking about an individual here. We're talking about self and selfishness being destroyed and being decimated. This is what Christ came to this earth to do. Biblical leadership finishes the work that God calls the church to do in spite of the apostasy of others. Saul was in apostasy. He didn't finish this work, but Samuel did finish the work, and God is calling us to finish that work. God called Christ to finish that work. That's why I think that Samuel is such a type of Christ here, because Jesus Christ came to this earth, and he hacked the fallen human nature to death by submitting it our fallen human will to God every moment of every day, finally taking it down to the second death of the cross. He completely decimated our fallen human nature. Lightbearer has printed a book recently on the nature of Christ. I've got a copy of it here in my hand. It's called How Jesus Was Like Us. It's a very short read. And on page 63, there's a summary, and I want to read it to you because I believe that in all of our controversy over the nature of Christ... And this book is not seeking to cause or stir up more controversy, but to bring a unity between the two divides, bring it together on this one point and this one point alone. Jesus came face to face with the root of our problem. The Savior of man came to the very spot where sin had taken the place of self-sacrificing love. The greatest battle we fight is the battle against self, selfishness and self-preservation. Jesus fought that battle every day. The will of Christ was just like my will. 
His will did not naturally want the cross. His will shrank from God's will as decidedly as mine would have. Jesus was just like me, but he was more than me. He was far more than me. He denied his will to do the Father's will. He denied self-preservation and revealed the self-sacrificing love of God. And in doing so, he took me to the cross and crucified me. We are all crucified in Christ. Because in Christ, the root of the problem of sin, self-will, was destroyed. As he overcame our self-centered human will, he crushed our selfishness. He hacked it to pieces, allowing his human will to be submitted to God and purified. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. Praise God. So, I believe that Samuel here is a type of Christ because Samuel hacks selfishness to death. He destroys it. And this is what Christ came to do. And then as we move through this, we see, and I'm just going to give you a summary here of a number of chapters. We see Samuel in chapter 16 told by God to stop mourning for Saul. Now, sometimes we can get a picture, well, is Samuel more long-suffering than God? Samuel is mourning and God is done. Samuel wants more mercy and grace and God says stop. No, Samuel is a representative of God and we could even say that Samuel here is revealing the heart of God and God is saying to Samuel or to himself, I've got to stop mourning over Saul. I've got to move on. It's hard for God to give us up. It's hard for, you see Jesus weeping over the temple in Matthew 23. How can I give you up? How can I let you go? Hosea chapter 6. How can I let you be like, like um, the cities of, in the plain of Sodom and Gomorrah? How can I do that? It's hard for God to give us up, to give us over. And then you see that, that uh, Samuel is actually afraid of Saul. Now, the reason why I think this is so revealing to us is because biblical leaders may seem courageous, and they do courageous things, and God blesses us and wants us to be courageous, but we're all afraid. We're all afraid. Samuel was afraid. I remember reading that. I'm thinking, wait a minute. What do you mean Samuel was afraid? I can't believe he was afraid of Saul. He was so brave. He went right up to Saul. He, he rebuked him. He he he. he you know, gave him the straight testimony. And yet at the same time, he was human. Biblical leadership is human. We have our fears. We have our struggles. And Samuel, when he was told to go and anoint someone in the place of Saul, he went to Jesse's house, and the first person he saw was Jesse's older son. And what did he say? This has got to be him. Was he right? No. So even Samuel was wrong at times. Even Samuel was, was misdirected by appearance and needed to be reminded by the Lord of who it was that needed to be anointed. Biblical leadership is completely 100% dependent on God. We, we can't depend on our own judgment. Even if we have years of experience, we've got to depend on God and His wisdom. And then 1 Samuel 17, David and Goliath 18, Saul becomes jealous of David. David is anointed, Saul becomes jealous of David. And it's interesting that David is doing the same thing that Saul did. He's anointed, but he goes out and he's just taking care of, of the sheep. And he comes to bring food to his brothers who are fighting in the war. And in that con context, he hears what Goliath is saying. And he goes to Saul and says, I'll fight him. Now, the brothers of David were upset that David was even there. And they began to accuse him. And David basically ignored them and went right to the king and told him, I am willing to fight Goliath. And the reason why David did that, I'm not sure if you remember this, is because an angel had spoken to David and told him that he needed to do this. David wasn't just going on his own impressions. He wasn't, as his brother said, he wasn't just out there for, to, to generate self. God had sent him on a specific mission. His, his, son, his father had sent him on a mission, but, but God had also directed him. 
And God will direct us as we are faithful, as we wait on him, as we do those things that he wants us to do. We prepare ourselves, and that's what David did. David told the king, hey, the lion, taken care of. The bear, taken care of. God did that for me, and he'll take care of me now. A lot of people that I meet, young people, want to be involved in ministry because in their minds, ministry is speaking at 3 ABN. Ministry is being on television. Ministry is being in the limelight. That's not ministry at all. Ministry is ministry. It's about ministry, right? It's about ministry. It's about doing something to help people who are around you. There are times when preachers will be in the limelight and times when preachers will be featured on television and on 3ABN and those times are very scary times for preachers. But there are other times when preachers and teachers and and ministry is all about praying for people and, and consoling people and counseling people and encouraging people and hanging out with people and doing Bible studies and door-to-door work and, and just being involved in teaching and sharing and, and ministering on, on the level that is practical. And those are the times when I feel the safest. Because that is ministry. David feel safest with the sheep. But God calls him to more than that. As he's faithful in that ministry, God calls him to do more. And he does more. And Saul becomes jealous of David. And in that context, he seeks to kill David. Now, there's no reason for this, except for jealousy and envy and and the bad spirit that's come upon Saul. There's no reason for one of God's anointed, Saul, to attack another one of God's anointed. I believe, well, let me ask you this question. Do you think that David and Saul could have worked together? Ask Jonathan that question. How do you think Jonathan would answer? Absolutely. Jonathan worked with David, didn't he? They were, it says in... 1 Samuel chapter 20, they became close friends. They covenant, they made a covenant together. They became close friends. There is no reason why any ministry in the Adventist church could not work closely with any other ministry except for envy and jealousy. There's no reason for any of these walls and barriers to be raised up. God has all of the funds that are needed. He has all of the work that is needed. There's no reason for us to be, to be jealous or Uh, trying to get something ahead of anyone else. We're going after the car that's not wrapped, and we don't realize how much God really has for us to do and how much He wants to bless us financially. There's no reason for us to be competing with one another in ministry. But this is the way that Saul felt. And David couldn't understand it. David was trying to minister to Saul. He was trying to be part of what God was doing in Israel. And now he had to flee from Saul. And and Jonathan couldn't understand it either. They made a covenant together. They worked together. And then David flees to Ahimelech. And what does he do? What does he say to this priest? He lies to him. David, God's anointed, lies. And again, I think it's important for us to recognize that biblical leadership is not always perfect. It's not always righteous. There are times when we fail, when we fall short. David is falling short here. In, verse, in chapter 21. And of course, what happens because of that is, verse chapter 22, Saul goes to Nob and does what? Kills all the priests. And David later confesses, I've occasioned the death of all the priests of Nob. It was my fault. I shouldn't have lied. And then in chapter 23, of 1 Samuel, David rescues the town of, of Keilah. An interesting story there. And then in chapter 24, and this is the key chapter that we're just going to highlight here for a few minutes, David spares Saul's life in the cave of Engedi. From the time that Saul is seeking to kill David, and David is running from Saul, scared for his life, and even lying to the priest because of his fear, to the time when Saul, David meets Saul in the cave, and in that cave, David's men say to David, this is the day that God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Say the word, we'll put the spear through him one time, we won't have to do it a second time. 
from that time to that, something takes place in David's heart, in David's life, that causes him not only to restrain himself from harming Saul, but to restrain his men from harming him too. The natural inclination of the human heart of each one of us is to get even with those who have hurt us, to get revenge on those who have been opposing us, to get back at those who are seeking to undermine or destroy us. We're not doing it with literal swords and spears, but the Bible says that our tongues are like a sword, and we use them to cut people, to hurt people, to harm people, to inflict people and sometimes just to defend ourselves. And I think it would have been self-defense in, in a sense. It would have been self-defense for David to just say, yeah, let's put the spear through him. He's trying to kill me. I'm just defending myself. But he doesn't do it. Something takes place that I think is significant. And I want to share this with you quickly because we are going to be, let's open our Bibles. Got to go to the Word. The, you know, the physical word, to Psalm 59. We are faced with this very same experience right now, today. We are going to encounter not only in the church, and that's just the preparation for, but we're going to encounter in the world the ire, the, the, the hatred, Matthew 24 says, the hatred of all nations. You're going to be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And we're going to have to gather, our test is going to be to gather warmth from the coldness of others, courage from their cowardice. We're told in the context of Matthew 24 that it is when the world hates us that this gospel of the kingdom will be preached as a witness to all nations. It is that gospel of the kingdom that is preached as a witness to all nations that brings the end. It is not simply preaching the gospel in the here and now that is going to bring the end. Follow me closely. But it is the preaching of the gospel in the context of the hatred of the world against you that is going to bring the end. Because when you can preach the gospel, when you can share the love of Christ, when you can preach justification by faith, which in essence means turning the other cheek, going the extra mile, when you can forgive others unconditionally who absolutely hate you, that is preaching the gospel as a witness. And that is the witness of the gospel, not just the 28 fundamental beliefs and the evangelistic series and the basic doctrines of Adventism, but that preaching of the gospel is what's going to bring the end. And that is the test that we face. And I thank God that he hasn't brought that test to us yet because we're not ready for it. And I know we're not ready for it. I know I'm not ready for it because I'm not... My love is waxing cold in my encounters with people in the church. So I know I'm not ready for the world. The footmen are wearying me. How can I contend with the horses? But God is preparing us, and I praise God for those trials that prepare us. And David was being prepared. And David struggled. He's running from Saul. Now, Psalm 59, it's really interesting. It says here in my King James uh, prep to this, it says that this was a psalm that David wrote when Saul sent and watched the house to kill him. This is what happens just before David takes off to the wilderness. He's in his house. Saul has just tried to kill him. He's in his house, and Saul has sent men to watch the house to kill David as soon as he comes out. And, of course, Michael, Saul's daughter, David's wife, puts a dummy in the bed with, you know, some, some kind of wig on top of it, and David in the night sneaks out the window and takes off. And, and this is his experience. These are the words. Have you ever wondered why it is sometimes when David is speaking in the Psalms that he, he says stuff like, and I'm going to read this here in um, verse 11. He says stuff like this about his enemies. No, excuse me, not verse 11, verse 12. For the sin of their mouth and the words of their lips, let them be taken in their pride and for cursing and lying which they speak. Verse 13, consume them in thy wrath, consume them that they may not be, and let them know that God rules in Jacob under the ends of the earth. Selah. Have you ever wondered why David says stuff like that? Just destroy them. Just wipe them out. Just, just take them out, Lord. Just, uh, just let them have it. I mean, he just, he really speaks in a destructive tone at times in the Psalms. Well, it's important to know the context, and the context of this is really significant because David is running from Saul, and David is in a situation, I believe that this is an outline for 
what the Bible tells us to do with anger. You know that verse in, in Ephesians 4.26, I struggled with it for many years. It says, be angry and sin not. Thinking, how do you be angry and sin not? Isn't anger sin? Let not the sun go down on your wrath. This is what I believe David is doing in Psalm 59. He's being angry so that he won't sin. Who's he being angry with? God. He's talking to God. He's praying to God. He's giving to God. He's emoting to God. It's an outline here of what to do with anger. Because we're going to be in situations and circumstances with individuals, with ministries, with leadership, with ourselves, in our families, where we're going to get angry. And if we don't learn how to communicate our anger responsibly, we will communicate it irresponsibly. David is communicating his anger responsibly right here. First thing he does in Psalm 59, verses, uh, verse 1, is he goes to God and asks him for help. Deliver me from my enemies, O oh my God. Defend me from those that rise up against me. Do you believe God's going to answer that prayer? So David doesn't have to defend himself. When he gets to the cave in Gedi, he doesn't have to defend himself because he's asked God to defend him. And then he lays out, this is part two of what to do with anger. He, first he asks God for help, part one, then he lays out his situation. This is what happened to me. This is, this is my circumstance. And then, part three, he lets God have it. He tells him how he feels. He tells God his feelings. This is how I feel. I am so angry right now. I wish that you would just consume Saul. I wish you would consume his men. I wish you would just take him out. I wish you would just destroy him. That's how I feel. He just lets it all out. He just emotes to God. And then, part four, he praises God. Verse 16, but I will sing of thy power. Yeah, I will sing aloud of your mercy in the morning, for thou hast been my defense and my refuge. Unto thee, O my strength, will I sing, for God is my defense. God is my mercy. And he's good. He's good. It's all taken care of. He's gone to God for help. He's explained his situation. He's emoted. He's given all his anger to God. Be angry and sin not. And he's praising God. And when he meets Saul in the cave, I don't know that his men went through this little experience, this little outline. And his men say, kill him. David says, no. No need to do that. God's my defense. God will judge me between me and him. God will take care of this. Praise God. That is what God is calling us to. That is, this is the experience God wants us to have. And, and in this sense, David was not just a type of, of Christ. He, Christ was the son of David. What a powerful title that was, that was borrowed from David for Jesus Christ and how he exemplified that. Let's go quickly now to the, about the last chapter in 1 Samuel. Chapter 30, and I just want to go through this in the 10 minutes, 9 minutes we have remaining, I might take 5 minutes of overtime just because the um, recording guys got here late. I wasn't going to tell anyone that, but it's a great, a great reason to go overtime. What made David such a great leader and a type of Christ? It was how David responded to Saul. It was, it was how he dealt with anger, and that freed him up to open up the package, to go further with God, to not settle for the Mustang, but to, to, get to, to receive from God a greater gift. And God wants to give us a greater gift. We settle down sometimes in our complacency. We're happy, we're content with being better perhaps than other people when God wants so much more than that for us. God's ideal for us is higher than the highest human thought can reach. So, in 1 Samuel chapter 30, beginning with verse 1, now it says, It happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day. Now you understand, David has been fleeing from Saul, and he's made this agreement with the Philistines, and they've given him a town called Ziklag. And in that situation, which again, reveals David's weaknesses. He has been called to go out to battle with the Philistines, but then some of the princes recognize, God gets him out of this, recognize that this is David, and they send him back. They don't want him to be there just in case he turns. I don't know what would have happened in that situation, but we know that David would never have fought against his own people. And so David goes back to Ziklag, and when he gets there, the whole place is burned to the ground, and all his family is gone. They're gone. It is dangerous for us to make any kind of deal with the world or to look to the world for any kind of protection from our enemies. We need to look to God. Because when we do that, we put ourselves in a situation, we put ourselves on Satan's ground, we put ourselves in a situation where we could lose everything. And that's what happens to David. And it says here, 
when David and his men, verse 3, came to the city and it was burned with fire, their wives, their sons, their daughters were gone, that David and the people that were with him lifted up their voices and they wept until they had no more power to weep. Biblical leadership weeps at personal loss. It's okay, guys, to be emotional. It's okay to be sensitive. Human beings are sensitive. Biblical leaders are sensitive, especially to the loss. We're not afraid. Don't be afraid to show emotion. We need more of it in our church today. We don't need emotionalism, and we don't need emotion to take over, but we need it in balance. So David wept. His men wept. They had no more power to weep. And, and David was greatly distressed. 4 verse 6, it says, The people, his people, his men spoke of stoning him because the soul of the people was grieved, every man for his sons and his daughters. What would you do if even your friends turned against you? If everyone that was part of your ministry, if you were, if you were at a point where people, everyone just wanted to take you out. What did David do? The Bible says that David encouraged himself, or the New King James says, strengthened himself in the Lord. When we have nobody human, we still have God. God will never leave us or forsake us. Biblical leaders understand this. They understand that God is the foundation and strength. And so he turns to God. And that's the kind of leaders we need in the church today. We need leaders who, when they're opposed, when everyone is against them, their foundation is God. And they're standing with God. And God gives them the strength. Because I'll tell you, if David hadn't turned to God, who knows if this mission even would have gone forward? Who knows what these men would have done? They would have been lost. So David knew that even though they were against him, even though they wanted to stone him, they spoke of stoning him. He needed to strengthen himself, in the, strengthen himself in the Lord and depend on God even in that moment so that he could bring to them and, and to others the rescue that they needed. We need to be strong in our commitment, in our relationship, in our, in our abiding relationship with God, even for the sake of those who may oppose us, who may be against us at times. David was greatly distressed. The people spoke of stoning him. And by the way, being a leader is risky and dangerous. <laughs> Even those who are close to you can turn against you. 1 Samuel chapter 30 and verse 7, Then David said to Abiathar the priest and Amalek's son, Please bring the ephod here to me. And Abiathar brought the ephod to David. I like this because biblical leadership is team sensitive. It's inclusive of others. It shares responsibilities. It, it continually and courteously asks for assistance from other people. We're a team. We can't do this by ourselves. And even though David is strong and his foundation is in God, he's still asking for help from others. Verse 8. David inquired, so David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this troop? Biblical leadership seeks prayer and guidance and direction from God before making decisions. David is on track right now. He is really on track. He's motivated by this great loss. And there are times when we get off track just a little bit, you know, when we slow down, when we get deterred, when we get, when we get sidetracked. And there are times when God allows trials to come into our lives to get us back on track. And David is back on track now. He's asking direction from God. He's inquiring of the Lord. He didn't do that when he left, fled Saul. He didn't, he didn't do that when he went to Nob. He didn't always do that up until this point. But he's coming back. And I, I love this about David because David was willing to see his faults, his weaknesses. He was willing to make changes and to go in a different direction as the Spirit of God led him in that different direction. He didn't make excuses for sin and, and for his failures. He was willing to own up to them. He's willing to say, you know, I did make a mistake there. I was wrong. I'm sorry. I apologize. Now, God, what do you want me to do? Quick, bring the ephod in. Let's, let's ask God. Let's see what it is that God, what, what direction God wants us to take. Saul many times took that into his own hands and made sacrifice himself and determined what he was going to do. But, but David doesn't do that. He wakes for God. He's inspired and motivated by God. In fact, in verse 9 it says, when David asked and God said, Go, pursue, for you will surely recover them, and without fail you will recover all. David is motivated by the word of God. He's motivated by the promise of God. He's motivated to action. There's nothing that can motivate us to action but God's promise, the gospel truth, that we will recover all. And why will we recover all? 
because Jesus has recovered all for us. And so when we put our trust in him, we will recover all. And we trust him for that. So he's motivated, he's inspired, he moves forward, verse 9. And then in verse 10, David pursued, he and 400 men. For 200 men stayed behind who were so weary that they could not cross the Basor. So David has 600 men, he's going forward. Now you've got to remember these 600 men have already wept till they had no more strength to weep. Now they've asked direction from the Lord and they take off and 200 of them can't cross the Basor. So David leaves 200 of them there. In other words, biblical leadership is sensitive to the needs of the weaker. He's aw they're aware of the strengths and the weaknesses of those that they work with. And they don't put more upon a person that they can handle. Verse 10, David pursued. Verse 11, excuse me. Yeah, verse 10. David pursued, he and 400 men, 200 stayed behind. They were so worried they could not cross the Basor, verse, verses 11 and 12. And then they found an Egyptian in the field and brought him to David, and they gave him bread, and he ate, and they let him drink water. Biblical leadership nurtures opportunities for breakthroughs. They find this Egyptian. They nurture him. They give him food. They give him water. This, this could be where the breakthrough takes place. And there are times when we are going to be working in the world and doing outreach, and we need to nurture those little opportunities. They, they may come from worldly perspectives, from different places. I think about Ellen White, you know, when she was in Australia and she received this telegram, this note, asking her about some land that was being donated to the church in Zimbabwe, present-day Zimbabwe, where we now have Seleucia University. This land was being donated by the government, and there were two young men by the names of Jones and Wagner, and these two young men, we all make mistakes, had said, you know, it wouldn't be right for us to accept this land from the government because that would be a mixture of church and state, and we're into religious liberty here, and so we shouldn't do that. And so the brethren asked Ellen White, and Ellen White sent a letter from Australia to the brethren. She said, God sometimes moves on the hearts of the secular world to give to his cause, and we should receive this land. Nurturing opportunities, even though they may come from the world. And then they gave him a piece of cake and figs and clusters of raisins, verse 12. And when he had eaten, his strength came back to him, for he hadn't eaten any bread or water for three days. And then, verse 13, David said to him, To who do you belong, and where are you from? Biblical leadership seeks information and understanding, even from the world. There are things the world can help us to understand that will help our mission. And we need to be willing to seek for that kind of information if it can, if it can be helpful for us. And then the, the, the slave explains his situation, what happened to him. Verse 15, and David said to him, can you take me down to this troop? Biblical leadership will ask favors from the world, make deals with the world if it will help the cause of God. Not in a compromising way. Because the Egyptian said to him, I'll do it if you make an agreement with me, don't. Turn me over to my master. Protect me from them. And so David makes this deal. Verse 17. Then David, as he's taken down to the troop, he attacks them. Now notice this. From twilight until the evening of the next day. How long is that? That's like, what, 36 hours, isn't it? Or something like that? David and his men are already been, they've already wept till they didn't have any more strength to weep. Then they take off in this journey that's so intense that 200 of them can't even cross the, the brook, uh, Basor. And then when they are led to the Amalek, uh, Amalekites, they fight for 36 hours straight. Where did they get that strength from? God. It all came from God. And God will give us strength. God will give us endurance. God will give us the strength that we need to accomplish the task and to stick with the task until it's finished. But he does that, I think, as we follow his principles, as we allow him to strengthen us. And one of the ways that he, he strengthens us is through following the principles of temperance. I know this sounds very intemperate here, you know, fighting for 36 hours. But we are naturally, we naturally tend, I naturally tend to be intemperate. When, my, when I get on a task, I want to see that task all the way through. And what I'm not realizing is this. There's no way that I'm going to accomplish this task unless I follow the principles of temperance. I'm not going to accomplish the task. 
God has given us the principles of temperance so we can be in it for the long haul. James White failed to follow those principles and he died an early death. To accomplish the task and see it through to the end, we need to follow the principles that God has given us. We need to pace ourselves and we need to have a reserve because when we come around that last corner, we're going to need to sprint to the finish line. The last movements will be rapid ones. So I'm encouraging you this morning with just one thing. Everything else will follow in its train. Don't be as concerned about what you eat, that's important, as you are about getting exercise. That is where we fail as Adventists. I know I do many times. If you will exercise on a regular basis, you will want to drink more water, you will get better sleep. A lot of these other aspects of our health message will fall into place if you will not neglect to exercise. Ellen White would go for walks every day for two miles. Walking is one of the best exercises you can do. All of us can walk. You know how we are. We pull into the parking lot and we're trying to look for the closest parking space to the front door. What are we doing that for? Whenever we do that, we're going to end up cramming our car in between other cars and end up with dings all over our doors. Why not park clear at the other end of the parking lot where no one's parking and we don't have to worry about anyone dinging our doors or running a cart into us and then just take a nice leisurely walk to the door. Unless you're living in Oregon and it rains a lot, of course, I understand that. But you can always bring an umbrella with you. <laughs> We need more exercise. We need more exercise. Okay, I'm getting off track here. So then it says here, So David recovered all that the Amalekites had carried away, and David rescued his two wives, and there was nothing that was lacking, either small or great, sons or daughters, spoil of anything that David had taken from. David recovered everything. Praise God. Biblical leadership, this is 1 Samuel chapter 30, verses 18 and 19. Biblical leadership recovers all that God has promised would be rescued. Everything. Don't, be, don't settle for anything less than what God has promised you. He wants you to recover everything of yours. Your family, your health, your, everything. He wants you to have it all. All of it. 1 Samuel 30, 20. Then David took all the flocks and the herds that he had driven before uh, that and the herds they had driven before those other livestock. And David said, this is David's spoil. I think it's significant that David didn't neglect to be financially responsible for that which God had given to him. And I think it's important that David was the one who took charge of this spoil because we're going to find out that there were others among David who were not willing to be as generous with what God had given to him as David was. We need to be financially responsible so that we can be generous with what God is giving us, generous toward others. Verse 21, David came to the 200 men who had been so weary that they could not follow David, whom they had also made to stay at the Brook Basor. And when he went out to meet David, when they, so they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And David came near to the people and he greeted them. He inquired after them. He asked after their welfare. That's what the, the Young's literal translation is. He said, how are you? Are you feeling better? <laughs> he was concerned for them. He didn't have a negative attitude because they didn't go all the way. He wasn't demeaning to them because, you know, he was stronger and the other men were stronger and better. And, you know, how come, you know, are you guys feeling up to it now? You think you could get us something to eat? No, how are you feeling? And then, verse 22, all the wicked and worthless men who went with David answered and said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered except for every man, his wife, and children, that they may lead them away and depart. Biblical leadership does not always attract godly followers. The church is filled with wheat and tares, good and bad. And it is our responsibility to hold to the principles and the character of God in order to be an influence and a help to others, rather than being influenced by those negative things that are taking place in the church. Many times when we dwell upon the apostasy of the church and the problems in the church, we become like them. We don't even realize it. We become critical and negative and backbiting, and we don't even realize it because we're doing it in the name of advocating the truth. But we're not revealing the character of Christ. David would have none of this. 
He says in verse 22, But David said, My brethren, you shall not do so with what the Lord has given us, who preserved us and delivered us into the hand, into our hand, the troop that came against us. So biblical leadership recognizes that God is the one. God is the one that gets all the glory and all the credit. He, this isn't our stuff. We don't have any right to decide how this should be divided. God has blessed us here in North America. He has given us wealth that is untold. All you need to do is take a mission trip, which you've probably already done, and you can know how blessed you are just to have the little that you may have. And we are responsible to be a channel through which that blessing can be passed on to other countries and other nations. That's what we're here for. Every dime and every dollar, and it, I cringe at this myself, we are going to be accountable for. God wants us to utilize the things that he has given us for the blessing of others and to pass it on, to pass it on. And that's exactly what David does. Who will heed you, he says in verse 24, in this matter? For as his part who goes down on the battle, so shall his part be who stays with the supplies. They shall all share alike. This is a picture of salvation. We do not deserve salvation any more than anyone else deserves salvation. God is the one that, that has given us salvation. God is the one that has, that has gifted us this victory over our enemies. And everyone gets a share. No one is left out. It doesn't matter how much we do for the Lord. We're no more deserving than anyone else of this gift that God has accomplished for us. And our job is to share the gift of salvation with everyone, everywhere, wherever we've gone. And that's exactly what David does. This is not only made an ordinance, which I believe verse 25 says, a statute and an ordinance in Israel to this day, which biblical leadership establishes long-term principles of equality and remuneration, as well as establishing biblical principles of righteousness by faith, recognizing and teaching and preaching the gospel as a message of God's salvation to all the world and not just for a certain group or a certain people. It's for everyone. And then it says in verse 26 that when David came to Ziklag, he sent some of the spoil to the elders of Judah, to his friends, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. See, biblical leadership recognizes the contribution that everyone makes to the cause of God. Even the people, not just that stayed by the, the brook Basar, but even the people that were back in Ziklag. Not only those people, but it says here in verses 27 and onward that, that David sent part of the spoil to every town and every city. Last verse says here, all the places where David himself and his men were accustomed to rove, everywhere he had gone, everywhere he had been, he sent part of the spoil because he recognizes, and we need to recognize, that the reason why we're here today, the reason why we have the experience that we have is because we are standing on the shoulders of David and Moses and Samuel and, and, and. The 144,000 is not an exclusive group from the rest of the saved. Ellen White is very clear when she was taken through the heavenly vision. She came to the temple and Jesus raised his lovely voice and he said, only the 144,000 go in here. Do you recall that vision? It's in early writings. She's going from place to place and she comes to the, to the doors of the temple and when she gets there, on this heavenly tour, this vision, Jesus raises his lovely voice and he says, only the 144,000 go in here. And she says, we all shouted, Alleluia, Amen. In Revelation chapter 7, it describes a group of people that is so great in number that no man can number them, a great multitude that no man can number, dressed in, in robes and, and in white robes with palms in their hands, and they're praising God and they're saying, salvation to our God and to the Lamb. That's, uh, to the Lamb. And John is asked by one of the elders, who are these people? And John says, I don't know who they are. You, you tell me who they are. And the elder says, these are they that came out of great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And they serve God, where? In his temple day and night. Only the 144,000 go into the temple. The great multitude that no man can number, 
of every nation, kindred, tongue, and people serve God in His temple day and night. Every single one of the redeemed is going to sing the song of Moses and the Lamb. Even Moses. It's his song after all. None of us are any better than anyone else, any more qualified than anyone else to be in heaven. Sure, we're going to have crowns of different sizes with different amounts of jewels on them, but that, that is, has nothing to do with salvation. It, it, that does have to do with the reward that is based upon the work we've done for Christ. But as far as salvation goes, we're all equal. Same status. We all have every right to be in there, in that temple. Last, last thought right here, and we'll close. And to me, this is um, powerful. And it's just, a, it's just a story. It's just an illustration. I've got two or three of them. I actually had one that was on uh, in a video, and perhaps you can look this up. It was done by a news broadcaster in Houston, Oregon, about a businessman. And I wondered if this man was an Adventist. He sounded like he might have been. He runs an office supply company in Houston, and this was a story that came out in 2011. His name is Simon Lee, and he had just moved into a bigger warehouse. He was happy to see the bottom line grow because now that his business is growing, he has more money to give away, half his profits to be exact. The first three years, we didn't make any money, he says. We were in the red, so we didn't have a lot, any problem giving away money, Lee joked. But these days, EIS gives away forty dollars to $50,000 a year. You think, oh, $40,000 to $50,000, that's not a lot of money. Hold on. The money goes to 11 different charities, including Houston's Star of Hope Homeless Shelter. Simon has always been a big volunteer at the Star of Hope for a period of time. He's really uh, just a consistent, in other words, they're talking about how he goes to this homeless shelter, he works with them as well as supporting them, etc. And then it goes on. And it says another charity he supports is uh, Aid Sudan. He's traveled there and he helps with water wells, build hospitals, and helps with the kids there and sees how, what a, a precious commodity water is. Now, here's the, here's the point. Lee, the owner of this company that gives forty dollars to $50,000, half their profits away every year, Lee earns, draws a salary of $40,000 a year. Some of his employees take home $100,000 a year. Here's the owner of this company that's just moved into a new warehouse. He gives half his profits away, which is forty dollars to $50,000, and he draws a salary of $40,000. Could you live on $40,000? Well, I know some of you do. I don't. And then it says, he's talking now on this interview, this news interview, then he says, he's only following his ultimate role model. Christ, he says, gave his life away for me. And to give money away is nothing compared to what he sacrificed for me. Giving away is really a deep joy, and anybody that has given a Christmas gift or a birthday gift has experienced that joy in some way or form. The purpose of life is to give back to the people who are in need. Now, there are several stories that you can Google and look up along these lines, but it amazes me. I believe he's a Christian, but it amazes me. Some of these other stories are coming from people who aren't Christians, obviously aren't Christians necessarily. And I'm thinking about even the story of, of Ford. But here's the point. David exemplified the principles, principles of biblical leadership, not just in all that we talk about him doing, but in the fact that when he got all these blessings, when he got all the spoils, when he got all of this stuff, and some of his men talked about not sharing it with these guys, not sharing it with these guys, David said, no, we'll have none of that. This is God's stuff. Everything we have is God's. We are stewards and stewards alone. Everything we have, all the material possessions we possess are God's. And God gives them to us so that we can be a channel to give to others, to share with others. And the more you give, the more God entrusts you as a channel. The more God can give to you as you become that channel to give to others and to share with others. And that is not only true of our financial stuff, but it is essentially true of the gift of salvation, 
of the measure of his grace and the gift of righteousness by faith. God wants us to open our hearts big. He wants us to forgive, to forget, to move beyond. He wants, us to, compl- he wants to completely heal us of the pain, the suffering, the bitterness, the hurt that we've experienced so that we can become channels through which he can pour that forgiveness out to others. And this is our greatest need. Our greatest need is to receive from God the spoils of his grace, the riches of his mercy, the abundance of his love, so that we can allow those, that wealth, the riches of his righteousness to flow out from us to others who are in need, who are poor, who are imprisoned, who are struggling. Do you feel that need this morning? I feel that need every moment. Let's pray together. Father, I just want to thank you this morning for the message that we find in the life and experience of David, as well as Saul, as well as Samuel. We just want to thank you for your words, that the clarity that they bring to us today, the message that they communicate to us right now in our, in our need. And in this time of preparation, before the final test, we recognize, I recognize my own failures, inabilities, my weaknesses, perhaps at times overwhelmed by them. But I'm so thankful that you can bring them to me in the context of Christ and his righteousness. I'm so thankful that we see Christ among the churches, standing among us as he reveals to us the failures and the faults that we possess. I'm so thankful for the message we have to overcome and the, and the victory that Christ has given us in overcoming our fallen sinful nature so that in him we are crucified. And Father, I pray that you would allow us, that you would empower us to take hold and to not be overwhelmed by our failures as we see them in Saul, as we see them in Samuel, as we see them in David, that we would allow your grace to not only reveal them to us, but to overcome them. Father, I want to pray a special prayer this morning because I know there are are people here, including myself, who are dealing with specific trials and struggles in family, in churches, in our own doubts and imperfections. And I'm just asking that you would give us the hope and the strength that we need right now to, to know and trust in Jesus and to believe that he is the author and the finisher and that he will finish what he has begun and to trust him for that, to take hold of that, to believe in that. Do that for us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.